This is How to Read. Brief Conversations with Brilliant Minds. How to Read is a series of brief conversations with literary scholars. I'm Milan, and in each episode, I sit down for a cup of tea with a different scholar, and we talk through their current research. And I'm Jess, the producer of How to Read. Today we're talking to Julie Crawford, an English professor who studies Renaissance literature and women's writing. We hope you enjoy the conversation. And now, back to Milan. During the Renaissance, a writer could be imprisoned just for claiming that a husband beating his wife should show mercy. It wasn't that the authorities wanted merciless wife beatings. The issue was that they understood criticism of a tyrannical husband as criticism of a tyrannical king. English professor Julie Crawford explains how power relations within the home have underpinned political thinking for many centuries. So nowadays we might think that even debating wife beating is just beyond the pale, but I gather that there were very serious debates about wife beating, pros and cons. So what happened there? (laughs) The one in particular that I think you're thinking about is the pamphlet published in 1609 called An Apology that argued that it was unjust to beat your wives. Mm -hmm. And that wife beating was a sign of tyranny and only barbarous nations practiced it. Mm -hmm. Whereas all the great democratic nations forbade it. Mm -hmm. And so the insight there is that wife beating was certainly about the conditions of women and relations between the sexes, but it was also always a comment on tyranny Mm -hmm. and the nature of power and what possible limits there are in power. Mm-hmm. So in the English Civil Wars, an amazing woman named Elizabeth Poole actually spoke before Cromwell's army and mm-hmm. said, look, just like a woman has the right to resist her husband when he's beating her, mm-hmm. so do the people of, of England have the right to resist their king when he's abusing his prerogative, when he's becoming a tyrant. Mm-hmm. So there was an intimate association between abuse of power mm-hmm and wife beating as a sign of abuse of power. So it was both about women, but also an analogy for the abuse of power. Yeah. So those examples, were they part of a more widespread debate, sort of um, debating the relationship between husband and wives and wife beating? Yeah, both of those things. You know, so it wasn't just Elizabeth Poole going into Cromwell's army chamber and sort of using this analogy. They used it in parliamentarian debates throughout the period. Mm-hmm. But there was a broader debate called the Carrel des Femmes, or the debate on women, which was, one could argue, it was a popular debate forever, including right now, right? Attacks mm-hmm. on women and defenses of women, so that anybody who wanted to be in the public sphere in very serious ways actually wrote either an attack on or defense of women, and almost always those mapped onto political positions so that misogynists were usually associated with tyranny. Okay. Right. And those who defended women were usually associated with people making arguments for the rights of the lesser empowered so that the debate on women was always a political debate. So people who wrote what seemed like really innocent domestic conduct books, you Mm -hmm. know, like here are the duties of wives and the duties of husbands. Why would they get arrested? Well, they would get arrested when they said things like, the husband 
who is a king in the domestical kingdom does not have the right to beat his wife. Mm. He has to understand that they both have obligations to one another and it's reciprocal. It's not a tyranny. Yeah. And that was censored. Mm. And it wasn't censored because people were, to be totally candid, because people were like, yeah, women. It was censored because the king saw that as an attack on the royal prerogative. Yeah. So it sounds like it's it's a debate that runs through a lot of different literary genres at the time. And also you were saying um, this woman who spoke in Parliament, mm-hmm. so also just spoken mm-hmm. genres. Mm-hmm. You also said that people were kind of, anyone who wanted to kind of like make, their, make a name for themselves mm-hmm. as a writer weighed in on this debate. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what what genre they were using to weigh in on that debate. Was it like Mm -hmm. essays that they were writing? Was Mm -hmm. it pamphlets? There were both pamphlets and Mm -hmm. very high-end, high-level treatises. So famous ones Mm -hmm. are by Boccaccio, Legends of Good Women. So those would be defenses. A famous one written by a woman, the most famous one written by a woman is called um, The Book of the City of Ladies by a French, late medieval French writer called Christine de Pizan. So these were treatises that really celebrated legends and histories of good women from classical tradition. And and how topical were those discussions that were happening within these texts? That's like, a super good, that's a great question, right? Yeah. So, for example, Sir Thomas Eliot, who was one of the sort of premier humanists and diplomats of the court and political life of Henry VIII, he wrote mm-hmm. something called The Defense of Good Women in 1540, which actually purported to be a defense of a, an ancient queen, Queen Zenobia, but was actually it for Catherine of Aragon, mm-hmm. lamenting... Henry's first yeah, wife. Yeah, Henry's first yeah. wife, lamenting that he had thrown her over. So mm-hmm. it was never what we would call radical equality, mm-hmm. right? We're not talking no-fault divorce. Nobody was arguing for no-fault divorce. Yeah. But they were nonetheless saying, you know, you can't simply put away your wife when she displeases you. Mm. Of course, Henry went on to do it. He went on to, like, you know, cut off their heads. But nonetheless, the critique was was levied, and you could argue that it was levied under cover. In other mm-hmm. words, Eliot could write this because he thought, I can always defend it and say, I was just defending a great history of good women from the Bible through Catherine of Aragon. Yeah. So it's what critics call deniability, right? Yeah. That you could say, no, I was just writing about about good women like Susanna in the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. I wasn't talking about you and your nasty political shenanigans, right? So it was explicitly a defense of her, but it was also Mm -hmm. an attack on Henry VIII's um, super bad governance, right? He didn't just like divorce, behead, and die, you know, kill (laughs) his wives. He was also absolutely a centralizing, absolutist, tending monarch. I mean, Henry VIII seems like a kind of fascinating example where the kind of political abuses and the treatment of Mm -hmm. his wives... uh, was, you know, they, the two came together there where in other cases they were just sort of, you know, you were translating one into the other. Yeah. For him it was both. Absolutely. Ones. It was like very explicit. Yeah. Him. And was that written just after he had divorced Catherine of Aragon or like... Yeah, yeah. 1540. Okay. So I don't know my dates. There, I know. So, I, so. Should, I should know them better. I like to say I'm a 17th century scholar as opposed to okay. 16th. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Contemporaneous. So very right. much like topical to that but really important thing like dominant statesman famous humanist this Mm -hmm. was not somebody on the margins yeah right this was somebody at the center of court politics and humanist learning and and so for me the question is like okay why were all of these extremely powerful 
people writing defenses of women. Mm. And if we presume, which I do, that it's not because they were all lovers of the female sex in any kind of delimited social justice or social That'd be way too nice. Way, that would be way too good. Yeah. Right? To see the sort of longer political history that this is part of and the ways actually in which it did mm. benefit and empower actual women. I'm curious. So you've mentioned a number of different women who were part of this debate. Mm-hmm. Um, how widespread was that? And what were the opportunities for women to be involved in this debate, whether mm-hmm. as writers or in other ways? Mm-hmm. You know, you have famous canonized women like a Christine de Pizan, who wrote mm-hmm. the book of the City of Ladies, yeah. in participation of, uh, in the Carole des Femmes, or the debate on women. Mm-hmm. But I'm sort of as interested in some of these less dominant cultural workers, so the women that we have traces of um, as publishers, mm-hmm. right? Women participated in the print industry as well, yeah. or as polemicists on a sort of slightly lower level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also a great bit of marginality of a woman reading a, a defense of women text and saying, hey, this is a great one to use, basically, an argument. Oh, right? yeah. So, you know, like women... for defending yeah, her own position. Totally, right? Mm-hmm. Or the pamphlet that I mentioned to you before that a really an early 16th century one that has a man and a woman. Oh yeah. So describe this one to us. So what it has is it's called here beginneth an interlocution with an argument betwixt man and woman, which of them could prove to be the most excellent. And on one mm-hmm. side, it has a man with his finger pointing at a woman. Yeah. And on the other side, it has a woman um, with her hand up as if protecting against the pointing. Yeah. And the best, best part of it is it has an empty speech bubble yeah. above her head. And when I teach this, I always say to students, what do you think that's for? And they never hesitate. They're always like, well, it's for, you know, women to fill it in, right? <laughs> to, yeah. to say what she's saying in response to him, mm. right? And what is, in, what, what is in that blurb, right? Judith killed Holofernes or yeah. shut up <laughs> or, you know, not so fast. And we know that many Renaissance books included big margins so people could write in them, or they even included um, mm. pages where people could write. They were, they were always inviting sort of dialogue and marginalia, but ones like this seem really clear to me to be inviting um, people to literally make use of them. Yeah, I can see how that gives women as well as men like m- many more ways into this debate. Yeah, right, and listen to this line, Yeah. right? yeah. And for women, often, it was certainly about their own rights and their own desires to be writers, to be participants in yeah. cultural and political life. But I think it's a grotesque disservice to say that they, any more than the men writing about the Carol if I were only concerned with the social and literary sort of rights of women. They, yeah. too, knew that this discourse was very much about commenting on political justice, yeah. political governance, shared governance, right? Yeah. And I've always said that about Christine de Pizan. I'm like, she ju- wasn't just writing about women. She was writing about politics mm. in the larger sense as well. Yeah. What's the value for you in studying these texts from our perspective now? So Constance Jordan, who's this great historian, said in 1990, it's tempting to speculate that the whole history of political resistance mm-hmm. was founded on the analogy of a wife's right to resist the abuse of her husband. Yeah. We actually, in the European, in pre-modern European thought, like across the continent and in England, mm-hmm. we have actually a really long tradition that suggests exactly that thing, that 
part of the reason there was such a prolific debate on women and the rights of wives wasn't because look how sexist the past was, but in fact that, you know, this was always deeply imbricated with how people were thinking about rights more generally. Yeah. And that our history of, of resistance, like mm. how we think about the history of political resistance, yeah. was absolutely and often centrally concerned with the rights of wives and women. Yeah. That that was never a separate or minority concern. And yeah. so, you know, it's very interesting to me to look at modern political dispensations where it's like the Council for the Status of Women, right? Mm. We've come to understand it as a minority concern as yeah. opposed to the sort of essential structural yeah. concern. Yeah. Okay, final question. Has studying these texts affected your relationship with your own wife? <laughs> um, that's so interesting. I mean, we, I do, we talk a lot about balance of power that sometimes we say, you know, sometimes I think sort of a 1950s heterosexual marital model is much easier, mm-hmm. right? That there's a narrative that there are certain responsibilities for the husband and yeah. certain responsibility for the wives. And the problem with equitable sharing is everything then is, is subject to negotiation. And, you know, in a lesbian relationship, it is an ongoing <laughs> debate, I think, about, about our obligations, our duties, our rights, what it is that you want. I mean, I'm not saying all heterosexual marriages are... Sure. But it nonetheless is something that we talk about a lot. We didn't actually enter into the institution of marriage, but we nonetheless are interpolated and interpreted that way, right? Like people always like your wife, and I'm like, shame my wife, Mm -hmm. right? Which I'm sorry, I didn't realize. No, but it is something that I think is absolutely related to these questions of Mm. how we organize people, right? And how we think about the kinds of ways in which people are socially and politically legible, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Julie Crawford, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. That was Julie Crawford, a professor in the English and Complet Department at Columbia University. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. There you can also listen to a bonus clip, Julie Crawford on Shakespeare's villain Iago a.k.a. the worst husband ever. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at How to Read Now. How to Read is produced by me, Milan Tolunen, and by me, Jess Engebretson. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.